Welcome to Inside the Road, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Stephen Bailey-Smith, the Senior Economist and Investment Strategist for Global Evolution. Global Evolution is an investment manager headquartered in Denmark, founded in 2007, that manages over $9 billion in assets. It specialises in investing in debt in emerging and frontier markets. In this episode, I speak with Stephen about their frontier debt strategy that targets a return of 10 to 12% per annum by investing in government bonds from frontier countries from Egypt to Bosnia. The fund has actually returned 8.6% per annum since inception in 2007. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Of course, as a reminder, this podcast is not designed, nor is it a recommendation of any specific investment or this particular fund. We strongly encourage you to take advice from your advisor before making any investment. Stephen, welcome to Inside the Road. Thank you very much. So perhaps we could kick off with you giving us a little bit of your background and the firm's background, please. Sure. So uh, I'm Stephen Bailey-Smith. I, um, I joined Global Evolution in uh, about three years ago, so early 2016, January 2016. Um, prior to that, I was 10 years head of research at uh, Standard Bank um, in charge of strategy and research, predominantly on Africa, but as a frontier market shop. And then before that, I worked for ING and various different other research institutions. So I've been covering frontier markets for almost 30 years, um, having studied um, to master's level in in economics with reference to to Africa predominantly. So I was seen as an African guy. And um, I met the Global Evolution guys uh, about 10 years ago when they first started. Um, So I used to cover them uh, on the sell side. Um, and you know they were always um, the most innovative and kind of early stage kind of investors in in the frontier space. And I think that's the that was what attracted me to join them. And we talked about that for many years before we finally sort of got it together. The firm uh, was started by a couple of guys, Morton and, and, and Soren, who uh, built an emerging market business at um, uh, Yiska Bank. Uh, they then put, t- took it out of there and built it at, uh, at uh, Sidbank and then span out of Sidbank into Global Evolution about, about 11 years ago now. Um, and bizarrely, they t- together created a culture of very frontier-orientated emerging market investing in, in Jutland. In, in um, and so on the sell side, I used to visit all three of these shops where there's, there's this sort of DNA of early stage uh, emerging market investing had, had been created by these two guys. Um, since since I joined, uh, the company has has you know I think it was about two billion when we joined, and uh, I don't know if you know the Danes, but they uh, they like to eat cake for everything, and uh, and we we enjoyed uh, ten billion dollar cake uh, 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 um, last week actually. Uh, I was I wasn't there, but the guys in the office did. So yes. Um, so congratulations. Yeah. So we the assets have grown, and I think that's a recognition um, that you know we 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 like to think that in that sovereign uh, emerging market asset class, we're we're kind of best in class, and 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 I think we do that because we 
we like to be first to the, you know, we're always seeing that new evolving story. Um, and, and I think increasingly we're seen as adding value to the emerging market story through bringing on new countries that are, you know, a part of that, you know, become part of that story. So, for example, I think we, we add real value uh, in, in any sort of, you know, hard currency mandate because we, you know, we're experts and have, you know, local market knowledge of frontier economies and, you know, of, uh, of the MB. Um, there's about 64 countries and um, probably two-thirds of those, and I, I don't think many people kind of acknowledge this, two-thirds of those are probably frontier. Two-thirds of the assets are emerging markets, so you have a number of countries that have a large weight in that index, but actually most of the countries in there we would consider frontier. So actually you're, you are getting quite a lot of frontier if you're not benchmarked, um, and we're not. You know, we're, we're totally agnostic. We don't we don't buy things we don't like, and we, um, you know, we, we 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 don't care about you know what the index says really. Stephen, could we just back up a little bit sure. for many of our listeners, that, and maybe define emerging markets and frontier markets, and also then also sovereign debt, please. Okay, so um, sovereign debt is obviously um, in 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 our universe, it is tradable. So it's it's debt that governments issue onto markets. Obviously, there is a number of other sovereign debts that are loans or um, syndicated loans or, or direct lending from, from participants. We, we don't, at the moment, participate in those directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we only deal in, in marketable sovereign debt. So essentially, we lend money to governments through market structures. And we do that either on, the, on a hard currency basis, that is a currency, it's, you know, the debt is denominated in a currency that's considered freely tradable internationally, predominantly dollars, but um, increasingly euros, occasionally yen and, and sterling, and I think there's even some Aussie dollar classes in that. Um, and then local currency debt, um, where the, the, currencies, the, the, the debt is denominated in, in the currency of the local country and, and is normally issued into the local, into the local market. There's a, there's a few occasions where um, uh, local currency debt is, inter- is internationally uh, issued through the Euroclearer system, but that, that's very unusual. So looking through some of the names, you, know, you mentioned Africa and your sort of experience there, but you're looking at sort of you know, Angola, Botswana, Cameroon, uh, Mauritius, you know, Kenya, Lesotho, Liberia, etc., and in Latin America, Argentina, um, you know, Bolivia, um, some of these places. These aren't traditionally places that people think of as sort of blue chip, gilt edged investment type of places um, that people want to invest in traditionally when you talk to an Australian high net worth or a family office mm. uh, or similar. So, so, what makes this an attractive opportunity? For people, um, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's several issues there. One, um, because they're not well-known um, places, um, there's often a lot of information alpha that's left on the table. So if you know more about those places than most other people, then there's often much um, better alpha opportunities than people perceive. There's a lot of very negative connotations about poorer countries mm-hmm. that actually leave a lot of value on the table, which you don't actually see in markets that are you know are very well covered. Um, and because of that, you um, you have much much more limited market risk. 
So you don't, for example, I mean, I think we're probably the largest holder of Ukrainian local debt. We, we were in back into that market before everybody else and we put fairly big positions on. And actually last year when the, you know, the whole kind of emerging market universe was having a bit of a meltdown because everyone didn't like Turkey and Argentina, actually Ukraine didn't move at all in the local market. So you don't have that same correlation with the, mark, the global market risk that you do in a number of the more established emerging markets. Mm -hmm. Secondly, um, the, the information that you, you get is much easier to assimilate because you're dealing in a smaller market and you can get to know the players much quicker. So you're, you generally, um, you're generally, particularly, and, and we're specialists in this, in the frontier fund that, that you guys are involved in, two thirds of that is local currency. And that's where the real kind of alpha, non-correlated sort of, you know, um, uh, kind of asset class is. So Stephen, many of the names uh, in frontier markets um, in sub-Saharan Africa and in uh, Latin America aren't really associated with, um, you know, gilt edge or, you know, blue chip type investments that many of our investors are used to and feel very comfortable with. Why? Why? should and what's so attractive about this asset class uh, for investors? Okay, so the, the, f the first reason is probably the information asymmetry. So um, these, these, these countries, because they're not part of the, and it, you know, maybe we should define what frontier is I mean, how, and how one does that. So it, there's a number of ways that one can define frontier. Um, you can use, you know, sort of financial market sort of definition and economic definition, and, and I mean, there's monetary definitions. Um, let's run through a few of those. Predominantly, frontier markets are pre-industrial, so a lot of a lot of emerging markets have gone through that industrial takeoff, and they actually produce things and start to compete with other economies, and they may not have reached OECD status, but they're well on the way to that. Frontier economies generally are those that haven't done that industrial takeoff, so they tend to be price takers for most of their, you know, for most of their their, their imports and uh, for the currency in it, etc. Um, they they tend to be commodity reliant, um, and and so so and and they're 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 in this sort of phase where they have to invest aggressively. Um, to get to that stage where they've got electricity, they've got roads, they've got all the things that they need to be, you know, productive and to compete, and and that requires a huge amount of investment, and and part of the debt that we lend is is to enable those countries to do that. So, how do you get comfortable, given the the lack of information in those type of markets, to to be able to take positions and make investments? Um, it's an extensive process um, that that has to be uh, regularised. I mean, we, we do that um, through a quantitative system. So we, we grind a lot of data and, and look for um, sort of anomalies within that data. We have a huge kind of, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we, we keep um, sort of databases on each of those countries with all the information that we can. We have, I mean, we probably speak with, the IMF is probably one of the major sources that we use, and a lot of these countries are, are interact with the, the IMF, you know, a, a lot. 
Um, and so we, we probably have one or two, maybe three calls a week with, with various IMF officials to update us on, on the various countries. And then we, we, we try and visit most of the countries that we're involved in. One of the members of the team will try and visit at least once a year. So we, we, we like to be on the ground. And then we, you know, we obviously have extensive networks of, of you know, policy makers. And, and, and actually, the, the, the key players in most of these countries, there's, there's actually quite a, 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 quite a niche group. And if you have access to those guys, which we, which we generally do, then actually you can keep on top of that um, reasonably easily. Mm. Um, bizarrely, you know, there's, there's a lot um, uh, less sort of m market risk when you're when you know because you, you're 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 actually trading against the central banks uh, a lot of the time, particularly in the local markets, rather than against the market more broadly. Because a lot of, uh, particularly in the local asset classes, um, you know a lot of the, the the FX, which is which is what we run predominantly, the risk on, is is very um, heavily managed. So understanding what a central bank wishes to achieve and whether they can do that actually is the major question that we're asking, rather than what is, what are, what is the market thinking about treasuries tomorrow. So actually what we're getting is really idiosyncratic risk and, and, you know, and, and, and much less market risk. And Stephen, for investors coming into the fund, what sort of return should they expect and at what sort of time frame would you encourage them to think about? I mean, yeah, I mean the, the, the fund, you know, if, if you compare it to any of the other emerging market sort of asset classes, is the best performing, I think, over the last five years by, by any sort of standards. Um, it, it's, you know, over the last three years, I think it's been about 30%, um, so 10% a year. Um, I think since inception, it's 8.5 gross in, in dollars. And, and, those are the, and, and if, you, if you break that down, um, it, you know, at the moment, I think the the fund runs a, a, a yield a carry of around sort of fifteen. Um, sorry, about twelve percent. So, if you're just to hold the assets that you had to maturity, those debt instruments, the the interest return on that or the yields around twelve percent. Correct. Now, the the yield on the local currency is a little more than that. It's probably near a fifteen percent at the moment, which mm. is extraordinarily high. Um, the yield on the on the dollar debt is obviously less than that. At the moment, the portfolio is two thirds local and about a third hard currency. So that obviously drags down the overall yield. You then and and the presentation that you know you guys can look at um, obviously shows that you you generally have some upside or downside in terms of capital appreciation, mm -hmm. and then you often have a drag, and we expect this from currency depreciation. So you, you, you normally lose between 1% and 3% on, on FX, and we hope we can you know, sort of make that up in terms of the, um, the capital appreciation. But that's, that's where you, we do get some cross-currents from um, uh, some you know, market correlations. And in, in worse years for EM, obviously that tends to hit us a little harder where we have duration. And we, we, we tend to pick up a little bit of beta from the hard currency um, names as well. So that, that, that asset class tends to trade as a, as, as a block often. And, and you know, getting real alpha from that is very difficult. If everyone hates anything to do with treasuries, then, then emerging markets kind of sell off as a block. 
So we, we, you know, that's when the the the, the kind of capital appreciation. Will and how did the fund perform uh, in going to the last quarter of 2018, where markets were really risk off in emerging markets with the, you know, Turkey and Argentina? Yeah, I mean, issues. actually, um, funny, funny enough, that the, the the real two, the two quarters that were horrendous were were Q2 and Q3. Actually, the the, the fund performed extremely well in in in, in Q4 and Q1. Um, but in, in uh, we 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 had a few idiosyncratic um, issues that that um, hurt the fund last year. Um, Argentina, we, we we got that a little bit wrong. We we thought that once the IMF deal was in place and uh, you know it was the biggest program ever, we'd seen the currency sell off aggressively, and and we didn't see the second leg of that kind of materializing, and we didn't we didn't. We, I think we underestimated the degree to which um, 2018 would be a, a risk-off kind of sentiment for emerging markets. Uh, we, we saw a similar thing in 2015, and normally you don't see that sort of mass hysteria sell anything to do with emerging markets um, so close after such a you know an incident. So we, we you know we 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 were. We kind of were positioned for a slight correction, but we didn't believe that it would be as aggressive as it was. And so we got, yeah, we got, we got a little bit hurt in uh, in 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 uh, in Argentina, and and we picked up a lot of um, a little bit more beta when it went in through having sort of longer duration positions in a number of the portfolios. So actually, we saw a little bit of sell off, and uh, and uh, and we lost a little bit on the duration as well. And what's the current outlook for the fund and and sort of the frontier markets that you're operating in? I mean, it's it's a. I mean, for me personally, it's a fantastic asset class because it's uh, it's always evolving. There's always new countries, you know, bringing new markets to you know the, you know allowing their markets to to be accessible to um, to to the, to the global markets, and um, and so you know, I mean, going forward, I I, I mean. I think at the moment we're the only real fund that actually plays, you know, properly in this asset class in local frontier markets, and we're seen, you know, as experts in that. I think going forward we're going to have more competitors as people realise that this asset class is undercorrelated, and 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 you know, to a certain degree that will pick up a little bit of market risk and, and beta, but. Um, um, so, so be it. And can you talk um, a little bit about, you mentioned the correlation there. Um, is that one of the main attractive points you see with a lot of your investors, the, the fact that the asset class is uncorrelated to traditional equities and other asset classes that they might have in a portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a completely unique asset, and particularly in the local. I mean, you, 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 as I said, we do pick up a little bit through the hard currency and we, we like to have that in there um, for for. For periods where you have uh, a complete sort of meltdown in, in emerging markets of FX and commodities, but um, you know, and, and so you can play between those those two asset classes. But um, but the local yeah asset class is 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 almost zero correlation with anything going on. I mean, yeah. Um, as and, and as I said earlier, it's all about understanding what the the, the central bank wants to achieve. From from that uh, from their FX policy. Can you talk to us a little bit about the process of global evolution going into a market and the system and process before an investment is made um, into how that works, please? Sure. I mean, it's um, I mean it's it's a similar 
um, process to the, the overall investment process. Um, so, you know, we, we have a, a weekly strategy meeting mm -hmm. where we look at the globe um, and we create our sort of top-down view of what's going on. And, and we have a strategist that spends most of his time looking at, you know, Europe and America and, you know, and how... Um, commodities are going to behave and so we, we you know we, we you know and I, I kind of work on that a little bit with him and we formulate a sort of you know a, a kind of top-down view we then uh, run kind of um, kind of metric models on a on most of the countries in the world and mm -hmm. we we're looking for um, big movers and, and outliers and you know we have a sort of an FX model and we have a spread model and we're looking for things that kind of, you know, look like they're moving. And then, you know, we monitor from the bottom, you know, sort of up uh, a whole number of countries and we're always looking for that turning point in an economy that's, you know, is in deep trouble and is emerging for that. Um, and, and, and so we, we spend a huge amount of time monitoring countries. So for, at the, for, for example, at the moment, two of the countries that I'm particularly interested in is, is Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. That's obviously after you know, Mugabe was, was, was removed, you know, and we had elections and Manangag was coming. And the reform process there is extraordinary. And, um, and you know, we're very excited about the developments there. Um, and, you know, but the market's not ready to invest in properly yet. We had some small tester positions there that, you know, um, we, we're, we're waiting to see how, how they've emerged. But so, you know, we like, to, we like to sort of test these markets. We like to monitor them for that point at which actually that turning point, you know, is, is properly created. In Zimbabwe's instance, you know, I think it's coming quite soon. I think it will be associated probably with this new IMF package that's coming in, in place. But, you know, so, you know, we're really excited. We've been monitoring that for, I mean, I've been personally been monitoring that for 25 years. And, you know, so it's been quite a long, long time coming. Um, Angola is another another market. I met with the, the central, central bank governor in Washington uh, two weeks ago where he announced that finally they're going to open up the capital account and allow... Uh, foreign investors to you know to participate in that market. These guys run um, their, their currency. Last year is the only currency I've ever seen that's done this, and I think it's because of the capital controls. Um, they run a fiscal balance, uh, you know, sort of actually a minor surplus and a current account surplus, and the currency halved in value. I've never seen that before, actually. Um, so, you know, you have 25% yields, a currency that's cheap as chips, never been cheaper. This is an oil producer that, that runs twin surpluses. And, you know, as soon as that market opens up, it will be you know, an incredibly, you know, decent and, and, and interesting story. It has an IMF deal and it has a fantastic reform story. And, you know, I've been, again, been monitoring this local market for the last four or five years, waiting for the opportunity for this to happen. And, and you know, it, it requires that catalyst of the regulatory capitalist, you know, catalyst that enables us to, to have access to the market. I mean, there's, there's a whole number of countries that we, we monitor in that way, waiting for an, an appropriate opportunity. Um, Uzbekistan, when you know the former president sort of you know um, he died actually, and you know there was a whole new reform story there. We were again we were the first people to uh, I mean we actually own local currency debt there through a, a European Development Bank structure 
So before they came to market with a Eurobond, we were, you know, we were involved in there for a year and a half. So you know, we had informational um, advantages over everybody when they finally came to market in the Eurobond markets. We've, you know, we've been covering it for that much longer. So we're always, you know, any country that is, you know, in in a in a in a bad place actually creates an opportunity because there will be a turning point. And so we have a you know an ongoing monitoring process on that. Um, I mean, we obviously do screen for, um, I think, what we would call ethical reasons. Yes. So, I mean, we. I was going to ask, I think on, on your latest uh, uh, presentation, I can see that you won't invest in places like Afghanistan, Cuba, Laos, North Korea, Haiti, Palestine. Um, I know Venezuela wasn't highlighted on there, which, which it may be now. We, um, we, don't, we don't have positions in Venezuela. Um, we, we have in-depth conversations around whether we should invest there or not. So we, we, we do run what we would call an ethical screen. We won't lend monies to governments that clearly um, have, do not have the, bene you know, the benefit of their people in, in, in mind or they're in war or they're, you know, they're, you know, it's clearly... Uh, you know. How do you go about determining that? We, we actually have a, have a model that um, one of my colleagues runs. Uh, we have a number of variables that we put into that. Um, and then, you know, if that triggers a, 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 a change in score, then we'll have a long, hard discussion about whether that's the right thing to do. So in, in the same way that the models trigger discussions, you know, they trigger discussions for what we call, you know, ethical um, kind of variables as well. As a company, we don't, I mean, although we've done a huge amount of work correlating what's called ESG with, you know... Ethical, um, social, governance. Well, with spreads, actually. So, it's, I mean, it's clear that governance drives spreads. And we, you know, we have a few data providers that, you know, and we can score that as well. And it's not, you know, that... Uh, amazing to think that you know if a country's well run, it spreads narrow. I mean that's that's pretty obvious. Um, what 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 we have a problem with, and 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 as a company, you know, our, our strapline is that we you know we'd like to be seen as leaving a socially uh, positive impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things that we're actively involved in is, is trying to get our asset class seen as development finance. We, we think that what we do is akin to the World Bank lending or the IMF lending to governments. So we will lend governments money in times of stress that you know, uh, alleviates that stress. We, we provide money that builds schools and roads and power stations and all the things that you need to lift people out of poverty. And we do it in size and to places that actually most investors don't. So, you know, I mean, it's not just us. I mean, as an asset class, I think this asset class should be seen as an ethical investing asset class for those that care about alleviating poverty. And unfortunately, the ESG structure does not have anything to say about that. And, you know, my, my generation, in my age, yeah. we, we, you know, we, we grew up on personally... Negative screens rather than... Than positively positive impacting. Outcomes. Exactly. And, and, you know, for me... You know, watching your kids, you know, go to to sleep hungry is 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 anathema, and 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 actually, you know, the investment industry should care about that. Stephen, most of these markets that we've been talking about are heavily.
commodity driven. Um, how do you pick up on correlations outside of that commodity uh, cycle or driven? Yeah, I mean, one of the, um, the, the, the areas that the portfolio does pick up the most correlation with global macro sort of beta or emerging market sentiment is through commodities. Um, not all of the countries we, we deal with are, are, you know, are commodity exporters. Some of them are, are major importers, and it tends to be um, those that import more oil do better when commodities are on the downside. But certainly um, during 2015, when we saw the, the bottom of the, the, you know, the, the real kind of tailspin of, of commodities, we did pick up a lot of, a lot of negative correlation. There's also a lot of correlation between emerging market um, FX and commodities. And, and that's the time that we do, you know, tend to, you know, when, when, when there's huge, when, when both of those things are selling off at the same time as we saw in 15, when, you know, there was a perception that China was going to roll over in terms of its growth, we, we did pick up a little bit of correlation. Um, we saw a little bit of that last year as well. Um, but nowhere, you know, nowhere near the same degree, predominantly because actually commodities are back to, you know, I mean, if you look at the CRB sort of index or CRY as they call it, actually in dollar pricing, we're back to the levels of 2002 before we saw the beginning of this boom. So actually, you know, for us, we're, you know, commodities actually look quite cheap still. So we're not too concerned that, that going forward, that's a, you know, a, a major downside for the portfolio. If, if anything, I, I think we're at the beginning of a, you know, a multi-year sort of upcycle for commodities. But that is probably one of the major risks to this asset class in terms of picking up kind of you know, um, cross-correlation. Stephen, look, thank you very much for your time. It's been most informative. Uh, really appreciate it. Before we leave the podcast, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with or any points you'd like to make additional to what you've covered? Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, my, my, my passion for, for many years has been to see, you know, to, to, to get investors that care about poverty alleviation to see this asset class. And it may not be with us, but, but with, a, you know, with anybody that, that, that is in this asset class to see this as a developmental asset class that, that actually lifts people out of poverty. And, um, you know, that's, that's a big mission for us and it's a big mission for me personally. And, um, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're listening to this and you, you, you understand that, then, then, you know, pass it on because I, I think this is, a, 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 you know, the, a wind of change that will bring incredibly, you know, big benefits to, to large swathes of the population. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.